Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before Been raking in billions and itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say code war, we say code pink Code pink for freedom Code pink for peace And this is Carly Town, National Co-Director at Code Pink, and you are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If this is your first time joining us, Code Pink is a women-led anti-war organization that's organizing across the country to put an end to U.S.-funded militarism around the world. We're here to challenge imperialism, capitalism, and war with the goal of creating a world of justice, peace, and equality. Achieving justice requires that each and every one of us joins together in solidarity to demand a better world. It requires us to understand that the struggle against U.S. imperialism is also a struggle against police brutality and anti-immigrant animus. The anti-war movement is also a struggle for peace. And we can't have peace if we don't advocate for workers' rights, women's rights, environmental justice, and racial justice. So if you're listening to this show, you've already taken the first step in being part of a movement for all of those struggles, and I welcome you. Um, So before we get into today's interviews, let's just talk about some important news that's happened over these past couple of weeks. So maybe you've been following legislation that Congress is currently debating, um, but chances are you haven't been able to keep up with all of the things that are happening because it seems like the goalposts have been moving every day. So if you have been watching and waiting to see if Congress will actually deliver and pass legislation to fund social services like green jobs, education, and an expansion of Medicare, uh, I wanted to give you an update. So some might have seen that uh, Congress actually recently passed what's called the infrastructure bill, which will fund um, much needed infrastructure improvements around the country. Now, you might know that Congress and some of the progressive members of Congress were waiting to vote on this infrastructure bill until they finally had a chance to vote on the Build Back Better agenda, which, like I said, was there to fund green jobs, education, and healthcare to the tune of about $3.5 trillion over the next decade, right? And so progressives in the House were saying, we will not vote on the infrastructure bill until we pass this Build Back Better agenda, realizing that that was a point of leverage they had in order to to pass this important legislation, um, which would address at least some of the issues that we need to address as a country, right? Unfortunately, progressives have caved and we are now at a point where Congress has passed the infrastructure bill and we don't know when or if or how we are going to see the Build Back Better legislation happening. And 
for most people who have been watching at least partially this debate, you'll know that many of our representatives um, have been coming out to say that spending $3.5 trillion over the next decade on things that will address climate change, things that will improve healthcare in this country, things that will um, increase the amount of money we spend on public education. They said $3.5 trillion, that's too expensive. That's too much money for us to spend. Um, but at the same time, something that's happening in Congress is the House of Representatives and the Senate are also debating next year's Pentagon budget, right? So it's called the National Defense Authorization Act, which is must pass legislation that funds the Pentagon for the following year. And this year, so far, the House of Representatives have approved a $778 billion Pentagon budget for 2022. Uh, but put another way, they have approved over the next decade at least $8 trillion in Pentagon spending. So compared to what we're talking about with the Build Back Better agenda, which again is only $3.5 trillion over the next decade, or put another way, $350 billion a year, that's a little less than half of what we want to spend um, on the Pentagon every year, right? So it brings up the question, right? When it comes to Pentagon spending, why is $8 trillion over the next decade never debated, never discussed as, quote, too expensive? But when it comes to spending money on healthcare, education, green jobs, this is $3.5 trillion is just too expensive, right? And this is a question we've been asking. And this is a question we have to continue to ask and continue to talk about because we cannot allow our representatives to pull the wool over our eyes, right? And say that this is just too expensive. We can't uh, do these ambitious social uh, programs anymore, right? So people can go to www.cutthepentagon.org to actually right now take action and call your senators to tell them to vote no on this enormous National Defense Authorization Act, which will approve at least $8 trillion for Pentagon spending over the next decade, and tell them instead to vote for the $3.5 trillion in spending that we need uh, for social programs over the next decade. So you can go to www.cutthepentagon.org to find out more. So in other news, in international news, um, something else has been happening in Glasgow, Scotland over the past two weeks um, at COP26. So every year, um, thousands gather to discuss uh, climate action, international climate action for the next year. And so this year, thousands gathered in Glasgow, Scotland for the COP26 climate summit, where representatives from 197 countries came together to talk about global climate policies and commitments um, for the next year, decade, in order to address what is a serious problem, which is the impending climate disaster, right? Um, but just for some background for people, uh, we had representatives from Code Pink in attendance at COP26 to draw attention to the sheer amount of, of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions that the US military emits every year. Um, and the reason why activists, peace activists and climate justice activists had to show up in order to demonstrate that we need to talk about 
the climate implications of Pentagon spending is because in the past, the United States and the international community have made deliberate decisions to exclude the emissions of the Pentagon and other militaries when counting how many emissions we have every year. So at the 1997 and 1998 negotiations for the Kyoto Accord on climate, which was also known as COP4, um, the US ins insisted that the Pentagon be exempted from all international climate agreements as a national security provision, right? Um, so as a result, all US military operations worldwide and within the US have been exempt from carbon emission measurement or reduction. And during the same negotiation, the US obtained an exemption for all country militaries um, from having to report or cut their carbon emissions. And at, you know, fast forward um, a couple of years at COP21, uh, where meetings which led to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, a decision was made to allow each country to determine which sectors would make emission cuts before 2030. So during that time, surprise, surprise, most nations decided to maintain the military exemption, right? So that's why at COP26, peace and climate justice organizations came together to demand that nations representatives agree to monitor and significantly reduce all military greenhouse gas emissions. And importantly, uh, we at Code Pink hosted uh, something called the People's Summit Workshop in Glasgow during the COP26 negotiations um, to discuss the size of military carbon emissions, the role of the military sector in protecting the extraction economy, how they seek to capitalize on the climate crisis by offering armed solutions, right? Militarized borders, quote, greening the military and how we might confront military power um, and forge lasting alternatives to war, right? So that all happened over the past couple of weeks. And it's really exciting that so many climate activists and peace activists were able to come together to make this meaningful intervention at COP26. So now on today's show, I am so honored and very excited to welcome um, and be in conversation with renowned author Andrew Cockburn about his new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Uh, we're gonna get a chance to talk with Andrew about so many uh, far ranging issues. And I'm very, very excited to talk to him because like I said, he's an author, a journalist, and currently an editor at Harper's Magazine. So I'm very, very excited to talk with him today. So without further ado, let's just get right into this really important conversation with author Andrew Cockburn. Um, so Andrew was born in London shortly after World War II, grew up in rural Ireland, went to school in Scotland and Oxford, and thereafter entered into the family trade of journalism. After spells on Fleet Street, the Evening Standard and Daily Mail, he joined World in Action, which is a great investigative documentary show on British independent TV, where he began taking interest in defense issues, which is very undercovered in the United Kingdom. Um, Andrew moved to the United States in 1979 and in 1982 published The Threat, Inside the Soviet Military Machine. A national bestseller, the book revealed that the Soviets were not an awesome threat, as we had been told for decades by the Western defense lobby. He showed that the troops were ill-trained and badly equipped, 
all to the benefit of their military industrial hierarchy. His argument denounced at the time in Washington and Moscow was actually proven correct following the collapse of the USSR. Since then, Andrew has written hundreds of articles on defense and other topics, several books, many documentaries, and co-produced the 1997 action movie, The Peacemaker, starring George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. He's also written books about Saddam Hussein with his brother Patrick, Donald Rumfeld, um, and just to name a few. So Andrew currently lives in Washington, D.C., where he is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, which means he has a front row seat to watch the headquarters of a declining but still rich, powerful, and cruel empire. He says it's endlessly fascinating, but also horrifying. So welcome to the show, Andrew, and I want to hand it over to you to give us um, more information about your new book and some of the important themes within that. Sure. Well, it's great to be with you. It's great to be on. I really appreciate it. I'm a you know, bit, long time been a huge admirer of Code Pink and everything you, you guys do. So um, my book, it's really, you know, the, the title spoils uh, Power, Profit and the American War Machine should give you a fairly good idea of where I'm coming from on this. Um, but, but I want to emphasize it is about you know, the word profit is very important in that um, because, I mean, there are a lot of themes explored in the book, but I would say the one that I'm most anxious for people to understand and to internalize when thinking about this issue is that the American war machine isn't really about defense or even about war. <clears throat> it's about something else. It's about uh, profit, uh, money. I mean, the object of the exercise is to increase the power and wealth of the military industrial complex of the entire, which now includes, you know, not just the services and, you know, the manufacturers, the contractors, but also the whole universe of think tanks and the politicians who live off this. And, you know, this whole enormous thing that now sort of squats <clears throat> on the American body politic. In fact, in one of the pieces, one of the chapters in the book, it's called uh, the, the, the Pentagon virus. I talk about how the, you know, in a way, the defense complex, it's like a, a creature. You think of it not as an institution, but as an organic, living, breathing being of some like giant single cell thing, like a, a virus or a, an amoeba that exists really in a sort of mindless way, except a concern to grow and to protect its food supply and increase its food supply, the food supply being money. And that is the object of the exercise. So when people say, oh, we've got a hopeless military, they're so incompetent, you know, they lose wars all the time and so forth. Well, actually, I think they're very smart because winning wars and, you know, doing an effective military job isn't really the top priority. The top priority is making money, uh, you know, and increasing bureaucratic and institutional power, um, which helps explain why they lose wars all the time, uh, so forth. So I explored this in, you know, a whole, take a number of approaches to explaining this. Um, in fact, the first two stories in the book, two chapters, are about examples of how the main objective that I've been describing 
actually prevents them being effective militarily. It really sort of gives the game away. And it, it came in the form of two things, two very real tragic events that happened. The first one is about an incident um, back during the Afghan war when uh, two American pilots were flying along in a plane called the A-10, which was specifically designed to be able to help troops on the ground. So the people, the pilots, have a, everything in the plane is designed to allow them to be able to see very clearly what's happening. They can fly at low level uh, because it's heavily, you know, and survive because it's quite heavily armored. Uh, it's very cleverly designed that way. They have a wonderful, very wide, expansive view through the from the cockpit of the ground and so forth. Um, so they're flying along and they get orders to attack a particular farm, farm compound because the controller who's miles away says, we know that the Taliban are in there and they're attacking American troops. So they fly down and they take a look and they can't see no sign of this. They see a, an Afghan farm family. Actually, it's getting towards the end of the day, towards dusk. So they're bringing in the animals for the night and the children are helping. It's a very bucolic, you know, rural, peaceful scene. So they radio back saying, oh, no, you know, that's not what's happening. There's no, you know, they describe what they're seeing. They said there's no uh, TIC, troops in contact, in contact here. So, they, uh, so they're told, no, go ahead and bomb. And they say, no. Then uh, a voice, another voice comes on, which is from a B-1 bomber, a huge supersonic or designed to be supersonic bomber designed to fly to Moscow and drop nuclear weapons on Moscow. And that is now being used to combat Taliban guerrillas in Afghanistan. The B-1 is very happy to bomb. They say, Ready to ready to take the you know take I won't do the jargon but they they say ready to ready to copy ready to bomb, um, so the people who can see what's going on on the ground refuse to bomb. The people who can't see what's going on on the ground because they're like three miles up agree to bomb and they duly bomb and blow away this Afghan family and destroy the farmers. So, and then then the next chapter I talk about where the, more or less the same thing happened, um, not that someone refused to bomb, but that a B-1 drops bombs on something on where they can't see what's on the ground and kills five American soldiers. And this is all to explain, the, or to explain, I should say, so we've got one plane that works, another plane that doesn't. The Pentagon is trying to get rid of the one that works because it's cheap, and it's not a sort of vastly complex $300 million nuclear bomber, which is what the Air Force likes because it's more money. So uh, it's a perfect example of how it's, this is not about defense. This is not about you know, an effective weapon, whether you think that's a good, thing, a good thing or a bad thing. They're not so interested in that. They're interested in something else. And that's something you know, that, that comes up in so many ways throughout the book. Um, and I think it's really important for people to understand that, especially for people, you know, progressives like, you know, we are like you know, Code Pink. Um, you know, it's Code Pink is a great anti-war organization, but you have to understand what the wars are really about. Uh, it's not just that, they, of course, we all know and we all just deplore the fact that, you know, they're, 
as you said, Carly, at the beginning, you know, they uh, <clears throat> they're going to use spend eight hundred billion uh, trillion dollars. Sorry, eight trillion dollars over the next ten years. Actually, my calculation will be it'll be well north of nine trillion, uh, given the, in the the cost increases that are inevitable for reasons I can explain in a minute. Um, as opposed to things we desperately need that's in the Build Back Better bill. Um, so, <clears throat> and that is the reason why we have the, you know, un basically unquestioning acceptance. I mean, the Congress votes these through, this ludicrous amount of money for defense, which doesn't give us a good defense, by the way. It's, it's uh, you know, that's beside the point. It's because this this whole apparatus, this this creature, as I've been saying, has gotten so much sort of like a intertwined, like a you know a strangler pig, you know the 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 the, the plant that wraps itself around a tree and kills it. It's so much wrapped itself around our society and our economy that it's almost impossible to get away. I mean, I in the book I give examples. For example, I mean, well, let me quote one example, which was um, Barack Obama, on very unfortunately, gave the go-ahead for a massive over reorganization, modernization, they called it, of our entire nuclear forces. It was really to build a whole new nuclear force. The one we had before worked well enough in terms of, you know, threatening to blow up the world if we were attacked which you could do perfectly well. Um, it's really all you want from a nuclear force, if you want one at all. And Obama agreed that, no, no, we've got to have a whole new one, effectively, new bomber, new IC, you know, missile, intercontinental missile, new submarine, uh, missile submarine, new submarine missile, um, across the board, a trillion, probably by the time they're finished, $2 trillion, okay? Uh, so they, <clears throat> and part of that, they were going to sort of make, you know, increase facilities for making the nuclear weapons themselves. And uh, at the heart of a nuclear weapon is a plutonium pit. Uh, they call it a pit. It's really a ball, well, sort of shaped roughly a ball of plutonium. We have a great number of these plutonium pits, which are, you know, lethal, by the way, for 100,000 years, anyone who uh, comes into contact with them. Um, we have a, we built so many during the Cold War. We have a huge surplus of all the ones we're likely to need. And yet they, they said, oh, no, we've got to build more. We've got to overhaul, build new facilities that the Los Alamos National Nuclear Laboratory in New Mexico to make more plutonium pits. At that time, the Senate, in the early part, when this was all being proposed, the Senate, one of the senators in New Mexico was Tom Udall, as decent and liberal a senator as you can find. Absolutely great guy, wonderful in every way. I really liked him. He went and fought like a tiger to, to have these, you know, these useless and deadly pits, you know, increased for the increased production because it was, you know, part of the New Mexico economy and, you know, lots of voters and money for New Mexico. So he was like trapped. He had to do that. And then, you know, you can, I can, cite you dozens of examples from across the country where people who, uh, you know, philosophically and, you know, people with whom you and I would be entirely in sympathy with, you know, with them and with their positions on practically everything. But when it comes to 
dealing with the defense complex in their home ground, they have to fall, have to fall over. So that's the main thing I talk about in the book. Um, and, you know, I give as many examples as possible from, from all sorts of different directions. But there's another aspect that I also, it's not quite so obvious, but I also would like people to pay attention to, which is for reasons that, uh, maybe I'll explain later, but anyway, put aside for the moment, for various reasons, there's a huge tendency, a huge drive, a compulsion to make more war, war fighting more remote for the US military. Um, and the most obvious example of this is drones, drone warfare, where you have someone sitting in a trailer in uh, in Nevada outside uh, Creech Air Force Base in uh, outside Las Vegas and lots of other places too, who are directing weapon, firing weapons that are in you know on the other side of the world until you know very recently uh, uh, Afghanistan, um, currently in Syria. Um, uh, who, who God knows where else, Somalia, definitely. Um, and, you know, terrible things happen as a result um, because, and we saw, you know, most vividly at the, just at the last days of the Afghan war when a drone killed a family, was supposed to be, you know, they said they were trying to kill a senior ISIS terrorist commander or bomb maker, suicide bomber. In fact, it destroyed an Afghan family who, who, by the way, the guy was working for the Americans, including whatever it was, six children, eight children, I can't remember, too many children. Um, this is all part, you know, this is not just with drones. It's like in everything they want to do is to separate, to make it more remote. And the reason mainly is, uh, is that's where the money is. You know, the more complex the technology um, the more you can sort of affect things at a distance, that's part of our Air Force ideology particularly, but also it applies to all the services. So the idea of someone being in direct contact with, you know, with what is going on on the ground, with, you know, with the actual business at hand, you know, fighting, targeting, maybe deciding not to fight, not to fire, it's all separated out. Um, basically, as I say, for reasons of profit. <laughs> but I mean, it's led to this sort of this ideology of remote activity. And that goes back to what I was talking about just now, the, the those two opening chapters in the book, where you see the terrible effects of that, where they, because the whole system, the system is biased towards remoteness. Um, therefore, you know, tragedy ensues. So um, those are the main two things. I also talk about um, something I hope people pay attention to, what a knife edge we're on in terms of nuclear weapons, um, that the whole compulsion and the whole sort of system, this gigantic, incredibly complicated system that's been built to enable launching the weapons. Uh, and how they're continually trying to streamline it. And there's a whole process I was very horrified to learn about this called jamming the president. In other words, you know, we all know that what's meant, what's supposed to happen is you know, they detect missiles coming from Russia. Uh, the, the radars and satellites give warning, 
and then you know it goes to the military headquarters here and then someone wakes up the president and you know he has to decide you know and he gives the order and we fire back um they've done their best to make the really impossible for anyone to the president or anyone he wants to talk to have a sort of sit down and think about this for a little while um you know shall we blow up the world or not it's all they they you know the, the whole process is he has like three minutes you know three minutes to think it over or not to think it over and to give the order to launch and then the whole thing proceeds almost automatically and or, or as automatically as they've been able to make it and they've done their very best so that you know that there's no need actually why if you're going to if the whole idea is to deter the other side from starting things in the first place there's no need to be able to do it immediately um, because you know we have things on submarines whatever you know the things are survivable it would be much more sensible surely to you know to keep the warheads away from the missiles as used to happen once upon a time so we're now going to take a short musical break with a song called hummingbird by bedouin um, i love this song but partially because the album is titled bird songs of a killjoy you know sometimes talking about the horrors of the military industrial complex can make you feel a little bit like a killjoy uh, but hopefully the song is is a nice little interlude for us so this is Hummingbird by Bedouin. Hummingbird will fly from flower to flower. Each passing hour, but the sweetest to
was Hummingbird by Bedouin, and this is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. So now let's return to our conversation with noted author Andrew Cockburn about his new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. So Andrew, you were discussing the dangers of our current process for approving the use of nuclear weapons and what might make that process even a little bit safer. It'll be very sensible not to have this launch on warning, you know, that the doctrine, um, which has been there for a long time, that the idea is that you, if you see the, if you see what you think is enemy missiles coming your way, you get ready to launch, uh, or you do launch actually, um which is you know is utter madness because there's a number of times when it's almost happened and each time it turns out that actually enemy missiles weren't coming our way or in uh, in certain cases we're heading towards russia because this applies to both sides uh that um <clears throat> you know that uh you know that they almost did it and there was one, you know, for instance, there was a time in the Soviet Union when they thought they saw American missiles coming toward them and they were getting ready. It was down to one guy in the bunker who was, you know, who, if he'd said, yes, it's real, uh, they would have launched and then, you know, we'd all be cinders. Um, he luckily had a, <laughs> was a sensible human person and said, wait a minute, I don't think this is real. I don't think this can be really happening uh and said you know switched it off and so we were all saved similar things have happened on our end um so i you know that's but again i think that the reason we have and you have to read spoils of war to it's too you know it's take me too long to explain it all now why this has come about but again it goes back to my basic argument that it's really pursuit of money of profit of power institutional power uh particularly by the air force um but all the services and their contractor allies to to bring this about so um i've probably been talking for long enough now i'll give you room to ask a question or anyone who wants to ask a question no that was that was really great i mean i think a couple of points that you brought up are really important um you know the sort of shift towards more um remote and, and and a lot of times what we think of as drone warfare i mean we talk about that a lot at code pink i mean obviously from our perspective it's because there's also a lack of accountability that comes with with drone warfare right like congress isn't approving those those um uh, that kind of warfare on the daily basis, but your point that it's also about profit, I think is really important and one that we don't often discuss. So I think that's, that's great to hear. I mean, horrifying to hear, but we need to know why these things are happening in order to take them on. Um, and, you know, I have a couple of questions from the audience. I did want to ask you maybe one more question um, about some of the themes in your book. Um, I know that you know, I was looking over it and it looks like you in part four, you include a, a few chapters about um, sort of the corruption on Wall Street and in international finance. Um, and, you know, we talk about that a little bit at Code Pink. We talk about, um, you know, BlackRock uh, 
which invests in weapons manufacturers and um, you know making that connection between Wall Street and war profiteers. But could you talk about more like why you included that in the book and, and how that connects to the US war machine as well? Well, it's all part of the US machine. I mean, it's, you know, it's, um, it's, I mean, I was thinking about it, it's pursuit of money. I mean, it's, um, at least in, with the defense system that I'm talking about, um, they, you know, it's disguised. I mean, they say, you know, we need this money for defense. And as I've been arguing and stating here, no, they need the money because they want the money. Um, and defense is a good excuse. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that every serving man and woman in the US military thinks this way, but the people in control very certainly do. But then we have Wall Street where, you know, they make no secret of it. <laughs> we want more money. It's, but it's to me, it's part of the same overall system. And in fact, uh, you know, the degree to which Wall Street actually and, and defense, the defense system are very intertwined. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, in 19, in the late 60s, uh, 19, 1960s, the Lockheed Corporation was about to go, you know, was about to go bankrupt. The, uh, actually the Pentagon were, they were prepared to let it go bankrupt because they could pick up the pieces and, you know, they would still, um, they would still get what they wanted. Um, but the bank, the, the Chase Bank, uh david the run by david rockefeller at the time rang up the president and said no you can't let this happen because Lockheed corporation owes us a lot of money so you have to bail them out so you know <laughs> the um it was wall street coming to defense's aid also you know that they're very intertwined well the wall street model of you know of ripping the rest of us off um you know, to my mind, well, put it this way, Wall Street doesn't really, just as defense doesn't really, the defense system doesn't exist to defend us, really, except as an excuse. Wall Street, to my mind, doesn't really play a functioning part in the economy. This is what really, it's really why I put it in the book, is, you know, it doesn't do anything particularly useful. Um, you know, it, it it's really, if you think of the, you know, our financial, our economic system is like a sort of pipeline, you know, conveying in which we exchange goods and services uh, and, and through the medium of money, of dollars. It's like Wall Street sort of plugged into that pipeline and sort of siphoning. It's like someone taking, you know, stealing oil from an oil pipeline. This is a Wall Street, you know, basically siphoning off money to no particular benefit to the rest of us. There's another thing, but though in those chapters that aren't directly about the Pentagon, there's one I really want people to look at, which is about sanctions, which is about the one, where it's actually our principal weapon these days is starvation, is to starve, you know, to cripple people economically and to starve them uh, <clears throat> to a great degree. And I, I, I talk about the evolution of that weapon. Um, and in a way, I, you know, I compare it to, uh, you know, bombing. 
I mean, you know, the, the, the bombing is meant to be precise and, you know, you take out the, the quote unquote bad guy or the, you know, the enemy factory and, you know, because we're so clever, technologically advanced, you know, we don't kill civilians. Well, of course we do. Um, in the same way, sanctions, as we've refined this weapon and we call it more precise, I mean, it is, it is very, it's a very sophisticated mechanism now, the whole sanctions apparatus, which I, I describe in, in Spoils of War. But in, but in the end, it's just as indiscriminate as, uh, as mass bombing. Um, funny enough, just before we started, I was reading in, uh, something about Afghanistan, and we're doing, we're doing it again. Uh, Afghanistan, the, because of the, the drought they're having, the wheat harvest is going to be down 30% this year um they would or even before the drought even before when they you know even before that shortfall afghanistan didn't grow enough wheat to feed itself and they were importing it from kazakhstan and the, in kazakhstan they have plenty of wheat and they're ready to sell it to the afghans but they the afghans can't buy it because they have no money well theoretically theoretically the afghan government the what you know the something called the afghan government has nine billion i think it's eight or nine billion dollars in u.s banks which we've frozen and they can't have it i mean okay we we dislike the taliban horrible you know we know all the reasons why we don't don't and won't like the taliban but still they do want to buy the wheat to feed the, the afghan people and we're stopping that and they say when we say, oh, we're being very humanitarian, you know, we let humanitarian supplies through. No, we don't. You know, we've frozen the money. And so, so I, I, I'm sorry, I feel almost as our sanctions warfare, which is real warfare, is, you know, makes me angrier almost than anything else we do. And, and by the way, is entirely counterproductive um, because it doesn't do achieve its stated objective, which is to, um, you know, bend the, the other side to one's will it just makes makes them hate you more and why not so uh anyway that's uh, <clears throat> uh that's sort of an answer to your question yeah i think that's that's really important right i mean we you know when when economic warfare like that is more often couched in this in this humanitarian language um and it's it's really horrifying so i think that's Really important. And also just speaking of Afghanistan, I don't know if you saw, but the CEO of Raytheon today, Greg Hayes, said that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan has had a $75 million impact in sales for the company. Oh. Um, so just coming on out and saying that, but, you know, we say. Oh, don't worry, he'll be compensated. He'll be compensated. The, you know, we, yeah. we, we've got a new Cold War with China, you know, of course, it's going to be OK. I hope he knows that. He, I'm sure he does, right? But just coming right out and saying that, right? Um, the end of war is bad for Raytheon. I understand why why what contractors or war profiteers um, building planes would want more expensive planes, but why would the Air Force want that? Why is what's happening there? Well, because power in the military bureaucracy, and actually not just in the military bureaucracy, but let's stick with that. Uh, well, there's two two reasons, two aspects, two answers to that. One is, you know, the, in the government, in, in these bureaucracies, the more money you spend, the you know, the bigger you are. Um, you know, you have more power. You know, you've got more. Um, 
you know, more clout uh, if you're spending $100 billion, billion dollars a year as opposed to the poor stiff who's only spending $10 billion. Your authority is greater. Uh, the, you know, you're more manufacturers kissing your ass and so forth. It's, it's, um, that's part of the reason. Another part is that now more and more and more the being a senior general or admiral, really what you're doing is greasing, foaming the runway for your transition to civilian life where you will go and work for the contractor that you've given a huge contract to. <clears throat> I mean, it's gotten very egregious. Uh, there's an organization in Washington, the Project on Government Oversight, which does excellent work on this and other things, but they did a report uh, last year showing that over the last um, few years, I think it's approaching 400 uh, three and four star generals and also their civilian equivalents in the Department of Defense have gone to work for major defense corporations. Um, uh, Secretary Mattis, uh, sorry, uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a four star general. He retired. He went on the board of General Dynamics. He was there for a few years. He was just on that alone. He was paid a million dollars. Then he was made Secretary of Defense. He resigned from General Dynamics. Uh, then after a while, he stopped being Minister of Defense, back to General Dynamics. Our current uh, Secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, he had to, I'm sure reluctantly, uh, close out his holdings in Raytheon. He was a director of Raytheon um, and made, I can't remember, I think it was eight or 900,000 out of that. So it's, you know, it's straightforward. It is very blatantly corrupt. So uh, spending the money is brings very rapid and material rewards it's a reason why uh there are other reasons too why i could uh, why the things cost so much why they want things to cost much but that's those are two of them right i think that's that's really important and also right uh what's happening now is as um Congress talks about the National Defense Authorization Act and the Senate Defense Appropriations Committee just handed the Pentagon 10 billion more than they even asked for, right? And I think that dynamic is definitely a huge part of it. Other than the US, what other nations are involved in the mass production and sale of weapons? And like the US, do these nations use their national budgets to overwhelmingly spend on um, weapons or the military? Well, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, with a lot of help from us, because we're, um, we've been berating, for instance, the Europeans that they need to spend more on defense. Uh, the British, um, UK is spending more, more money on defense. They have there, but the British UK is very much sort of integrated into the American system. A British company, BAE Systems, is actually a major US defense contractor, it's one, but it's also the main British defense contractor. Um, so yeah, Britain, uh, everyone's in on it, France, Germany, reluctantly, um, but also you've got India's increasing its defense budget. And, you know, let's, I don't want to sound like I'm, <coughs> I want to show I'm not one side in all this. The Russians, you know, the Russian defense sector is the Russian defense sales are hugely important to Russia. Um, they do their best to sell weapons. Israel is a very much a sort of military industrial state, which depends on weapons and security sales to a huge degree for its economy. So it's not a, 
problem unique to the US by any manner of means, but it's one that's certainly encouraged by us internationally, um, both by co-opting people or encouraging you know, people we control, or at least, you know, justifying other countries that are, you know, not necessarily our friends, you know, like the Russians, you know, they feel they, they're competing. So it's a, we very, I think I see us as very much the engine that sort of powers the global military industrial complex one way or another. Right. By no means are we the only uh, com uh, country to sell weapons, but we are, we make up such a large proportion of global military spending and also weapon sales. Um, great. I think um, I, I wanted to ask you also while you're here and then we can start wrapping it up, but I wanted to check in because I'm sure you know um, that the Congressional Budget Office recently came out with a report about how to shave um, $1 trillion off of the Pentagon budget over the next decade. Um, and a reminder, right, your, your estimation will, be, will spend at least $9 trillion over the next decade. Um, so what do you make of that report from the Congressional Budget Office? And are there other recommendations you might make to cut the Pentagon budget? I would say, I thought it was way, it was okay, but it was way too little. I, I, you cut it by, by half more. I mean, it's um, ridiculous. I mean, a long time ago in the, in the, in the 80s, uh, it was a, a great American called Ernie Fitzgerald, who was a senior Air Force official involved in cost management. And he, he started blowing the whistle and he got, fired and then a judge got it you know he sued got his job back and everything but he always he exposed the fact at the time that we were paying as two great examples that people remember we were paying six hundred dollars for a toilet seat and four hundred dollars for a hammer a simple hammer and ernie always used to make the point he said people had to understand he recently brought this out he said people understand that when you have a fighter plane costing you know a hundred million dollars that is a whole collection of toilet seats and hammers. There are, you know, it's a similar inflation, just as a hammer, which you know, which should cost $10, and here they are charging $400. Well, figuratively speaking, that plane is, full, is made up of hammers too. I mean, similar cost inflation. And we had a recent example. I mean, now he said a toilet seat costs $400. And now recently, in the last couple of years ago, I talk about this in the book, um, they discovered the toilet seat cover on a plane, on the C-17 plane, was costing $10,000 for a, simple, a sheet of plastic. And that's, you know, so forget just shaving, you know, whatever is, what, what would, you know, 12 or 13%, whatever the CRS said, you know, it's got to go much deeper than that. And if you did that, you'd start to get, if you care about such things, you'd start to get an effective defense because, if it's all about the money, as I was saying at the beginning, then you're not going to get a, much military effectiveness out of it. You know, it has to start with with cutting, you know, cutting the budget, taking a meat axe to the budget. Uh, mm -hmm. And actually, you know, it's a good argument, good way to approach it if you're discussing with conservatives, because actually, you know, the sort of libertarian side of the right wing gets this. Um, and, you know, you're not going to persuade them that we, you know, the reason to cut the budget is simply so we can spend the money on education because they don't really care. But if you say, listen, we need a decent defense, by the way, um, so let's, let's slash the budget, you get somewhere with that. 
Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point about that report. I mean, $1 trillion might sound a, like a lot to many people, but it's really just tinkering at the edges, right? And yeah. what you're proposing is we need um, an entirely different approach. I mean, the Pentagon has never passed a congressionally mandated audit. Um, we actually don't know where some of this money is being spent, right? Um, right. So we can't just shave a little bit off. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much, Andrew, for this great conversation about your new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Um, is there anything that people should know about where to find your book and how we can make sure that this gets out and more people read this excellent book? On Amazon, if it's, you find it easier. And I would certainly, on a selfish note, if you like the book, um, I would really appreciate a, a, a positive a review on, on Amazon. It, it helps a lot. So. Uh, helps Great. encourage other people to buy it. Great. We will make sure people do that. Everyone here, please go review this excellent book. It's really important. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you being on. So that ends our conversation with author Andrew Cockburn um, about his new book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. This is Carly with Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, DC. If you've listened to this episode and agree that we need to take on the US war machine and you wanna get more involved in our Divest from the War Machine campaign, you can always contact us at divest at codepink.org to learn more about our municipal, university and congressional campaigns to take on weapons manufacturers in our own communities. Or if you're interested in learning more about resources, current campaigns, and more ways you can get involved, you can check out codepink.org slash divest. So again, you can go to codepink.org slash divest to find out more about this campaign. That about wraps up our program for today. This is Carly with Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Until next time, peace. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. Code B.